Would you bow with me in prayer, please? Lord, by your kindness and your, your very spirit, take these provocative words and shape our hearts so that our lives are safeguarded from the wiles of the devil. Um, we need your kindness. We need your protection. So have your way with us now by your word and spirit, we pray. Amen. Amen. My name is Larry. I'm one of the pastors here at the church and had a chance. If, you, if you've been around for, if you measure your time at Northwake in decades, you may remember I taught this passage from a study in Matthew a long time ago. So for some of you, it'll be a, a memory exercise, uh, but I hope it'll be a safeguard for your soul because this is a really critical and extraordinary story we're looking at. And to help us think about it, I'd like to illustrate it with this. Does anybody know what this is? This is a mouse trap. It's a life trap. You can catch them. It's a catch and release thing. In case you want to drive your sister crazy, guys, this is a catch and release mouse trap. Um, so a little mouse comes. You put a cracker with some peanut butter or something like that in the back end. They come in. They push that little door open. They go in. Door snaps shut. You got yourself a mouse. You take him out back into the woods, banish him forever. And that's, that's how it works. Now, if you're a mouse and you encounter one of these traps, there's a series of questions, three questions that you really should ask yourself as you approach the trap. First, what is this bait that's in there? And usually it's peanut butter, sometimes it's bird seed, maybe some cheese, something like that. Um, what's at stake if I go in and get that? Well, you're going to be evicted from your warm dwelling to the cold hawk-infested woods uh, behind my house. Or in a conventional trap, life itself is at stake, right? Um, just a note, mice are really not good at that question, right? All they can think about is the peanut butter. That's all that they, that they can see. How will I respond um, is the third question. Uh, will the little furball take the bait? And I'm going to say, yes, yes, they will. I've caught a handful of them uh, this winter at my house using these. Uh, please don't tell my wife. Okay. Um, but this is not a lesson on mouse traps. It's a lesson on temptation and how it works. And Jesus models this for us beautifully in that passage it was just read, Luke chapter 4. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days. And when they were ended, he was hungry. So we're picking up the story near the end of a 40-day fast that Jesus was experiencing in the wilderness, really kind of in the desert. And Luke is going to drill down on those last three temptations in some detail. It's not all the temptations in all likelihood that Jesus faced um, after 40 days, but these are the three that are recorded for us in detail for our good, and they, they're intended to show Christ to us, to present him to us as the sinless Son of God. Um, there's a, a writer, his name is Matt Woodley, and he gives us a good summary of how Christ is seen in this. He says... Here in this passage, we see Jesus' deep solidarity with us on two fronts. First, Jesus stepped into Israel's story in the Old Testament. 
as the children of Israel wandered in the desert for 40 years and failed, so Jesus faced 40 days and nights of testing and prevailed. Secondly, as Adam and Eve faced one temptation in paradise and failed, Jesus faced three temptations in howling wasteland and prevailed. In both the story of Israel and that of Adam and Eve, he says, humans wanted autonomy because of their failure to trust the Father's goodness and love. In contrast, Jesus trusted his Father and thus recapitulated or, or took up and transformed in his own life the broken stories of Israel, of humanity, and of us personally. He lived the life we were called to live and thus achieved the mission of God's Son. So we're looking through a remarkable window in the Scriptures into a truly extraordinary encounter between the very Son of God, the essence of goodness, and the tempter himself, the devil, who is the embodiment of evil. And, and you should know that the Scriptures from cover to cover are clear that there is a real entity called Satan, the devil, and he's as real in this encounter as is Jesus. And according to Scripture, he is your adversary. He's a liar, but not just a liar. He's the father of lies. He's a slanderer. He's an accuser. He's the ruler of demons. He's a lion seeking someone to devour. I suppose you could say he's seeking you. And with each temptation today, we want to address the, the three questions that our mouse faced in its temptation, right? What is the bait? As we seek to uncover the strategies of Satan, Paul urges us not to be unaware of his schemes and be outwitted by him. What is at stake? Seeking to understand the potential impact of each situation to count the cost, I suppose. And thirdly, we want to look at Christ. How will he respond? And we'll learn who he is as well as we'll learn from his example. So, First temptation, Luke chapter 4, verse 3. The devil said to Jesus, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. So what is the bait? Turn these stones into bread and satisfy your, your great hunger. And Satan, notice what Satan does. He's attacking Jesus at his point of greatest need, his great vulnerability. After fasting 40 days, Jesus is literally famished to the point of death. He's about to starve to death. And this bait is trotted out at his most vulnerable moment, targeted specifically at his greatest need. And hasn't that been your experience? That temptations just happen when you're at your most vulnerable, it seems like? Learn here that Satan shows you no mercy, right? No mercy. He does not say, oh, she's had a bad day, or oh, they're suffering from a great loss. I'll come back later. No mercy. No mercy. What's at stake? Well, it doesn't seem like much at first. For Jesus, it's, it's a minor miracle, turning stones into bread, kind of like water into wine, um, What's the problem with that? And th this is another thing we see about Satan. He's a master at wrapping evil in a cloak of reasonableness. And if there was ever a time for a miraculous feeding, wouldn't this be one of them? 
Jesus is on the verge of starvation here. Surely, as God's son, he should be able to use his power to meet his basic needs. And so Satan is trying to introduce an element of selfish disobedience into Christ's relationship with his father. The target of temptation is always our relationship with the father. Always. Um, Professor Dale Bruner says that the devil's office we learn here again by his new name, the tempter, as Matthew calls him, is to tempt, seduce, and split relationships, especially relationships with God. So it's important to notice here as well, though, who led Jesus into this wilderness? And if you notice, it was the Spirit, the Spirit of God. Twice the Spirit of God is referenced here, once specifically leading him into this place of temptation. And these 40 days, it seems like, were part and parcel of the Father's plan for Jesus to be ready for his public ministry. The Holy Spirit led him there. This is not, Jesus did not take some misstep out of God's plan, a wrong turn. This is not some devilish trickery that Jesus fell for. God has led his Son here by his Spirit. And I think you notice that uh, our, our passage started with a, just a passing reference. He, he came up from the Jordan. So that's where Carson taught us so well last week about Jesus' baptism. And, and the Father appeared and spoke out of heaven saying, um, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. And then immediately he goes into, he leads him into temptation. It's good to keep that in mind when you find yourself in a really tough place spiritually, beset by all kinds of temptations. It does not mean God's abandoned you. It does not mean that he does not love you. Remember, the Spirit led Jesus into battle. Okay. And it would be an amazing battle for 40 days where the, the devil badgered and confronted and poked and prodded Jesus. But here in the first of the final temptations, Satan is pressing Jesus to distrust God's goodness, his care, his provision. It's almost like the devil's whispering, so this is how he shows his love for his beloved son. He drives you into the wilderness and nearly starves you to death. I like the way Matt Woodley put it. He said, Satan's temptations usually aren't obvious. We probably don't hear a sinister voice whisper, hey, buddy, there's a bank across the street. Why don't you put on a fake mustache and go rob that place? Instead, the essence of temptation is more like a pervasive, soupy fog. This is what we're more likely to hear. God must not be for you or with you. Emmanuel must not be walking beside you in this sin and abandonment. In the midst of, of the cold immensity of the cosmos, I think you're alone. You cannot trust in the care of a heavenly father who calls you his beloved and includes you in the fellowship of other beloved ones. So look out for yourself, grab what you can, and chart your own path through this world. Turn these stones into bread. And so Satan sneakily attacks trust. If he can pull out that one Jenga block, the whole stack will come down. And that's one of the core things that's at stake here in the first temptation, really in all of the temptations, um, Jesus' complete trust in his Father and the goodness of his word. 
his radical commitment to value God's word even more than food for a starving man. So though the bait may be small and seemingly insignificant, the stakes are always higher than they seem. That's the way temptation works. It's really not about the peanut butter. It's not just about bread and hunger. It's about trust. It's about what matters most, your legitimate needs or faithfulness to God. Satan is targeting Jesus' relationship with his father. How will Jesus respond? Well, he responds in each of these cases with scripture. In verse four, Jesus answered the devil, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone. So he uses scripture, but not like some lucky rabbit's foot that mysteriously wards off the devil when you recite it. Just reciting scripture is not necessarily sin repellent. Rather, when Jesus recites scripture, it is for him a life-ordering confession. It's a set of boundaries that he has made an irrevocable commitment not to violate. It's something he truly is committed to. His statement is not so much something that he enforces on Satan as something that governs his own life and makes it impenetrable. It's as though he is saying, it is written and I shall abide by it. Matthew expands on Jesus' response just a little bit more in his telling of the temptation story. He says, Jesus answered, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Every word. Jesus says, I will abide by it all. And he's citing Deuteronomy 8, where he's saying that the provision of God is sufficient to meet his need. And he won't deviate from it even to meet legitimate needs like life-threatening hunger. He won't deviate. Again, Matt Woodley says, by giving in to this temptation, Jesus would have used his identity as the son in a way inconsistent with the father's mission for his earthly life. In the Old Testament, the people of Israel demanded bread right away without trusting the father's love. And as a result, they died in the wilderness. But Jesus responded to this temptation by refusing to demand bread on his terms, choosing instead to rely on his father and live according to his father's will. When the first Israel failed, Jesus prevailed. He is showing himself to be the true Israel, the true faithful son of God who will pass the test, who will be faithful, who will accomplish the mission, whatever suffering it might entail. There is something that matters more to Jesus than food when he is starving, and that is loving and obeying his father. Um, and, and Jesus' response, that simple quoting of Scripture as his, life's, as his life's axis ends that temptation. Um, this kind of clear understanding and unbending commitment to Scripture ends temptation. Right? Not just quoting verses, but quoting verses you are clinging to, you are committed to. Satan is nothing if he's not persevering, though. He reloads, reshoots, second temptation from a different angle in verse 5. The devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and said to him, To you I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours." 
So, so this is kind of a puzzler, right? How did Satan do this? Like this was before satellites. How did he show Jesus all the kingdoms of the world? Maybe it was some kind of a vision. I don't know. But what I do know is that Satan has tremendous powers to tantalize and tempt if he can do this. How alluring must this be for Jesus? What's the bait here? It's all the glory and authority of all the kingdoms of the earth. And Satan has ramped up his game here. He's gone from making bread to rulership of the world. Satan is baiting Jesus with everything he has to offer, if it's even his to offer. You know, there's a sense in which there's some substance to this offer when you think about the titles Satan has in Scripture. He's the prince of this world. The whole world is said to be under his control. But Jesus says that he's a liar and he's the father of lies. So even if this was his to give, what do you think the odds are that he would follow through on it? The tempter makes promises, but should you really trust him to deliver? I mean, consider the source of your temptation. Satan is not tempting you for your good. Look, I'm not feeding the mice peanut butter because I want to bring them upstairs and make them cherished pets, right? I'm trying to evict them. It's interesting, what the tempter is offering here, Jesus will actually one day fully possess, right? There's coming a time, and it's sooner than it ever has been, when Christ will return and initiate a chain of events that will lead to his full-orbed reign and rule over all the nations, just what Satan is offering now. But what Satan's offer, he need not do two things that we hate to do, wait and suffer. It's an offer of an easier way, a shortcut around all of that. He's saying something like, it can be yours, Jesus, without waiting, without all the humility, without the suffering, without the cross. Power and glory can be yours now if you'll bow down and become a Satanist. So what's at stake? I guess all the kingdoms of the world are at stake. But maybe even more significantly, the allegiance of the Son of God hangs in the balance. Will he honor his Father? Whom will he serve? Whom will he align himself with? Whom will he worship? And that really is the bottom line in all three of these temptations. They're really one temptation kind of from different angles. Will you be loyal to the Father? Will you trust and love him? Will you worship him or another? Will you serve the Father though you suffer for it? Or will you serve serve me, Satan says, and be rewarded for it? This is what Satan is offering. It's really not about the peanut butter or whatever kind of bait might be in the trap that's your temptation. That's just the enticement. When When temptation comes, the stakes are always very high and they always involve your relationship with God. Satan is the prince of costly shortcuts. So how does Jesus respond? Again, verse 8, with Scripture. Jesus answered him, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and 
Him only shall you serve. Just scripture, again from Deuteronomy, this time Deuteronomy 6. Maybe all three of the responses are actually from Deuteronomy. Maybe one of our applications should be memorize the book of Deuteronomy. I don't know. But Jesus here binds himself supremely, totally allegiance to the Father. No cracks, no gaps. But Satan, again, is relentless. He has one more temptation to deliver. And in the interest of time, let's jump down to that third and final temptation in verse 9. So the devil took Jesus to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you to guard you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. So once again, in ways inexplicable, Jesus, the devil transports Jesus to the highest point on the temple, perhaps another vision of some sort. Now, by one estimate, this was equivalent to a 15-story building. That's the lowest estimate I found. Some say from the height of the temple to the low point in the valley nearby is a 45-story building. It's high, right? So having attacked Jesus at his weakest point in the first temptation, his hunger, now in the last he attacks his strength, the scriptures. And just as an aside, do you notice Satan quotes scripture here? Uh, even the devil can convincingly quote the scriptures to you. This is why the New Testament puts such a high priority on knowing the character of your teachers and leaders. And, and this is nigh on onto impossible to do with some random YouTube dude or dudette, right? Um, there's a guy, he lived in the, in the early part of the third century, like before the internet. And <laughs> his name is Origen, and he said that the devil, like heretics, is quick to quote scripture. And he says this, whenever you hear quotations from the scriptures, be careful of trusting the speaker immediately. Consider the person, what sort of a life he leads, what sort of opinions he holds, what sort of attention he has. Otherwise, he might pretend that he is holy and not be holy. Here at North Wake, we have a treasure trove of teaching riches that's beyond any church that I know. It's phenomenal. True, like nationally known experts in ethics and New Testament and Old Testament and counseling and evangelism and mission and discipleship and theology and philosophy and even British literature. Um, we have uh, like almost a dozen um, professional academics who live and, in a, as part of our church family. And to go around that source of information and find some random dude on YouTube to be your teacher is playing into the devil's hand. Right? It's interesting, Satan quotes from Psalm 91. He quotes it well. Um, this was one of our elders, Jerry Lassiter. This was his doctoral dissertation text, the early 90s Psalms. Right? Um, I'm not sure 
what the correspondence is between Satan and Jerry loving the same passage of Scripture. <laughs> but, but, if you need some insight on Psalm 91 and what the devil's up to, you sure should talk to Jerry Lasseter. So I've, I've said this before, and I'm saying it again, because you don't listen to me, <laughs> don't get your theology from some random YouTube dude. It's dangerous for your souls. Um, and so some of you are thinking, well, then I can never read a book because I don't know who the author is. No, you can read books and you can, you can even watch YouTube, guys. But maybe you could get some good places to start from some of these gifted, amazing teachers who've devoted their lives to discerning truth according to God's word. And you could start there instead of starting with the crazies. Okay? Why am I on this rant? Because even the devil will quote scripture to you. And I think he has a YouTube account. Okay? <laughs> so what's the bait here? Uh, from high atop the temple in Jerusalem, Satan challenges Jesus to throw himself down in order to set up some kind of angelic rescue. What does he hope to gain by that? Why would Jesus be tempted at all to do that? And I think, again, it centers around trust. Would he trust the Father's promised care or would he needlessly put that promise to the test at Satan's request? What's at stake? Um, trust in the Father's word is at stake. Make the Father prove that he is, what he's already said is true, really is true, that he really means it. For us, sometimes it can sound like this, God, if you really love me, you'd prove it by doing X for me. You must not love me because you didn't do Y for me. When the scriptures have told us that the great demonstration of the love of God is sure and solid for us and that is the cross of Christ for us. So the stakes are high here. It's the attack against his trust in his father's word again. Temptation is not so much something someone is offering you as it's something they're robbing you of that's very precious, a trusting relationship with your father. And how will Jesus respond? Verse 12 says, Jesus answered him, it is said, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Once again, scripture, once again, Deuteronomy addresses the temptation, constrains his behavior. Testing God is out of bounds for Jesus. He will not cross that line. It's interesting, Jesus would face a similar kind of temptation this taunting about, about, you know, proving himself, proving God's care for him from the cross. Author Philip Yancey says, nailed to the cross, Jesus would hear the last temptation repeated as a taunt. A criminal scoffed, aren't you the Christ? Save yourself and us. Spectators took up the cry, let him come down from the cross and we'll believe in him. Let God rescue him now if he wants him. But there was no rescue, no miracle, no easy painless death. For Jesus to save others, quite simply, he could not save himself. And that fact, he says, he must have known as he faced Satan in the desert. So Jesus would not take shortcuts to meet his basic needs or to attract glory or to cut short the suffering his mission would require. Not in the desert, not on the cross. Thanks be to God, right? 
In Matthew's account, Jesus prefaces this final quote of scripture with these, what are two little words for Jesus. Be gone, Satan, and the devil departs. Jesus prevails, right? Don't miss that. In every instance here and throughout every, every instance in his entire life where he was tempted, Jesus prevails. He truly is our sinless Savior. We do have a great adversary, but we have a greater Savior. And so Satan is banished by means of Jesus' clear grasp and unbending commitment to the Word of God. Again, author Philip Yancey says, as I look back on the three temptations, I see that Satan proposed an enticing improvement. He tempted Jesus toward the good parts of being human without the bad, to savor the taste of bread without being subject to the fixed rules of hunger and of agriculture, to confront risk with no real danger, to enjoy fame and power without the prospect of painful rejection. In short, to wear a crown but not a cross. And every temptation here is something Jesus could have had, maybe should have had, and one day would have. It's interesting, in Matthew's account, we read the closing verse. It says, Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. They were ministering to him. Uh, that language of ministry is a big, broad word for care, but it can mean bringing food to someone, like a waiter does in a restaurant. And so here we have angelic ministry quite possibly bringing food and sustenance to Jesus, just like he was tempted illegitimately. Now God provides legitimately. And one day, one day, all the kingdoms of the world will bow down before him, the book of Revelation says, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, worshiping. Every temptation was something that he could have and maybe should have and one day would have after he had suffered for us in submission to the Father. And Satan tempted him with this little shortcut, a slight deviation towards self and away from a long-suffering obedience to the Father he loved. But this Jesus would not do by his great love for his Father and submission to his every word he would not do. And our passage closes and says, when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. Jesus prevailed. It's um, about 20 years ago, 2002, there's a little town in Florida called Inglis. And Inglis made national news by banning Satan from its city limits. Um, there was actually, the mayor actually posted on the outskirts of town in some posts um, this proclamation. Be it known from this day forward that Satan, ruler of darkness, giver of evil, destroyer of what is good and just, is not now nor ever again will be a part of the town of Inglis. Satan is hereby declared powerless, no longer ruling over nor influencing our citizens. Makes you want to move to Inglis, right? We don't live in Inglis. Satan's still active here. He's still wandering about like a roaring lion, seeking someone like you to devour. And so because of that, 
Let's just think in closing through these three questions about our own temptation. What's the bait that's being set out for you? What is Satan enticing you with? Are you aware of it? A relationship or a a position or a possession or just a harmless little fantasy or some little shortcut around what God would ask? What's the bait you're being tempted with? What's at stake? Does it seem to you just like a little, small, insignificant thing? A little peanut butter or a loaf of bread? But might it damage your integrity or your purity or your marriage or your reputation as a follower of Christ? Becoming allies with the tempter is at the price of your communion with the Father who loves you. The prophets warn us, our sins separate us from our God. I was journaling this week and I was keenly made aware, and this is an excerpt from my entrance, from my journal entry, that temptation comes from the devil. Your temptation comes from the devil. Ultimately, that's where the string that's attached to the bait leads. If Satan is not orchestrating your temptation, he's surely delighting in it. When you take the bait, you align yourself with him, with the embodiment of evil, the accuser, the deceiver, the murderer, the liar, the old serpent, think of Eden, the father of lies, the enemy, your adversary, Beelzebul, the ruler of demons. That's who put the bait out for you. Remember that. And Satan does not use catch and release traps, right? He's a liar and he's a murderer. And he's playing for keeps. So how will you respond? Will you be able to cite the word with relevance and clarity and precision and faith, commitment? Will it become for you an uncompromisable perimeter that safeguards your very life from evil? Do you know what your most vulnerable temptations are? And do you have scripture at the ready? You know, this week as a result of all this reflection, I had to go back and anchor again several key scriptures at key areas. I know I'm vulnerable. I know I'm often tempted. And to, to, to renew my commitment to those and remember and think again about those and get them at the ready. But the good news is Jesus is victor here, right? Perfectly. Where Adam and Eve failed, where Old Testament Israel failed, where we failed, Jesus does not. And that's why he can be our savior. He lived the perfect life that we could not live to give us the life we always wanted. Life with God. And in your time of testing, you can trust him. You can lean on him for help and strength. The very sinless son of God, our savior. And that's really what we do when we come to this table. We remember Christ's ultimate victory over temptation and sin and evil. He would not take a shortcut. He would not seek a more comfortable way. Christ, by the cross and his resurrection, has defeated the devil. He is your sure refuge from evil. And with this table, we remember that. His body broken, his blood shed to cleanse us from our sins. Sometimes when you approach the table, it can be helpful to have 
kind of like a little mantra in your mind you can say or pray or think. Here's one you could use today if you'd like. It's from Matthew's account, adapted from his 10th verse in chapter 4. You could simply say as you approach the table today, quietly in prayer, be gone, Satan. I will worship the Lord God and serve him only. And we'll leave that on the screen for you if it will serve you as you approach the table, just to pray that little prayer, perhaps even over and over. So, the Lord's Supper at North Wake is a commemoration, a remembrance, an act of worship of Jesus and the great rescue that he did for us from the bonds of evil where he took us from the kingdom of darkness and put us in the kingdom of light. If you're a follower of Jesus and you're currently walking in fellowship with him, you're willing to forsake your sin, this table is open for you. Okay. If you're not yet a follower of Jesus, then you don't have to worry about this symbol coming for this symbol. You should worry during this time about receiving Christ, about praying and welcoming him as your Savior and your Lord. When we come to the tables, we like to use the the wall aisles and these two aisles, or the center aisle rather, and then return using these two aisles. Um, once everyone has been served, I'd like, once you've received the elements, I'd like you to hold them until everyone has been served and we'll take the elements together then as one, one people. So if you'll bow with me in prayer, then we'll open the table and you can come and receive the elements. Let's pray. Lord, have mercy. Christ, have mercy upon us in our great need. We thank you for uh, the definitive victory in your death and resurrection, Jesus. And we want to remember it and cherish it and meditate on it and worship you for it now. The table is open for you to come and receive the elements. Hold them and we'll all partake in just a moment.